Please welcome Deepak and David. Oh God. It's okay. Thank you guys all for coming out, uh, especially after finishing the marathon. You look fantastic. Uh, you all have that, that glow of uh, having just run for a while. Um, Deepak and I are, are excited to talk a little bit about his exciting new novel today. But I thought we would kick off our event with his reading, an excerpt from the book. Deepak. Hi, thanks for coming. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first chapter, an excerpt from it. It's called uh, Gulf Return, but if my parents were to say it, they would say Gulf Return. <laughs> in a labor camp, somewhere in the Persian Gulf, a laborer swallowed his passport and turned into a passport. His roommate swallowed a suitcase and turned into a little suitcase. When the third roommate, privy and vital to the master plan, ran away the next morning with the new suitcase and passport, he made it past the guard on night duty, onto the morning bus to the airport, past the board ticket agent at check-in, past security, past Pat Town, and a rummage through his suitcase, past using the bathroom once, twice, thrice, to pee, to shit, to sit, past duty-free, where he stared at chocolates and booze and magazines and currencies, past families eating fast food and tracksuits or designer wear, past men and women sleeping on the floor, past his past, past his present, past the gold in the souks, the cranes in the sky, petrol in the air, dreams in his head, past God and the devil, the smell of mess halls, past humidity and hot air. Past it all, past it all, past it all, past it all. Until he found an empty chair in the departures lounge where he sat and held his future in his hands. It was then the little suitcase sprouted legs and ears and the passport developed palms and long fingers as well as a nose and a mustache. And soon after boarding call, at the very moment the stewardess checked his documents, the third laborer was asked to wait. The stewardess needed time to figure out what protocol she should follow, or what precedent there was for the man and his possessions. The man preferred not to wait, and ran as fast as he could through the door to boarding. Past passengers had already gone through and formed a line inside the tube with the little windows, waiting like blood in a syringe. Thank you. Thank you, Deepak. That was amazing. One of the, the things I noticed about the judge's citation for this book, which won the inaugural Restless Books Prize for New Immigrant Writing, uh, was that they compared you to a lot of really great writers. Everyone from Kafka to uh, Saunders and Rushdie and Bruno Scholz. But the thing that struck me uh, in reading your book is that you were so utterly your own writer, and I uh, I really appreciated this book. I'm excited to 
to get into it a little bit. I wondered if we could begin with a little bit of background, uh, because a lot of us, I, I suspect, um, might not know who the temporary people of your title and of your stories are. You know, I've I've been to Dubai a couple times. I've never been to Abu Dhabi. Oh, I've it? been there just long enough to know that there's something weird about it. You know, there's something weird uh, about LA. I'm just saying. No, I, certainly, certainly, but it's a, a different weird. Uh, I I think I hope. Um, you know, I I see one of my favorite poets here in the audience, Andre Nafi Saheli, who's forthcoming book, The Promised Land, also deals with uh, life in in the Emirates and in Abu Dhabi, and he has a poem that really moved me in that book called Vanishing Act about the startlingly low percentage of people who actually die in Abu Dhabi. Tell, tell us a little about those temporary workers. Who are they? I can't speak for all of them. I can tell you my grandfather died in Abu Dhabi, so there's one person. But what I can tell you is that you have individuals who are trained or programmed to leave. And in the States, it's very similar if you had an H-1B visa, mm-hmm. which is a work visa, and it's very similar. I think the difference is you have individuals who understand that they're on a contract and they're in the UAE to work. And then they work and work and work, and the expectation is you leave and like, Five years, ten years. My father got there in 72. Um, he still hasn't left. Because then you have kids. You've got to put the kids through school. You have to do other things. Um, so you train yourself to expect to leave. But you don't know when that's going to be. So that fucks you up a little bit. I can't swear. Okay, that screws you up a little bit, right? I think you can swear. Okay, just check. This is LA. I'm not sure. Okay. So... Why that tampers with your mind is something that I've been interested in for a while. My parents have a different reading of it. Um, and I'm familiar with Andre's work because I read his manuscript this morning. And it resonated. It resonated simply because you have these people who grow older and they understand they have to leave in order to die elsewhere. My father will probably die uh, in Kerala, which is the place that he left when he was 22 or 23. He understands that. Uh, The rage, whatever rage that other people have, um, come from the children, simply because it's called temporary people. They're temporary simply because... They understand they're not going to be there for a while, right? I can't speak for everybody. The book isn't about documenting every single experience. Yeah, it's about fiction, do- right? Right, and it's about documenting an experience where you understand that you may not be in a place for far too long, which is how it is everywhere. But the difference is, 15, 20 years from now, if you walked in certain places in the UAE, Abu Dhabi especially, you may not know that certain people existed who may have come from Kerala and whatnot. That makes the place a little unique. So I would answer your question that way. Yeah, historically, when when did these contract laborers start coming in to the Emirates? So from what I know, the South Asian demographics started probably in the 50s, 60s, or the 70s, um, depending on the country. It's different in Bahrain, it's different in Saudi, mm-hmm. it's different in the UAE, and this also needs to be said. Most of the workers used to be the locals. Mm-hmm. So if you read, um, say, Abdul Rahman Munif, the Cities of Salt trilogy, mm-hmm. uh, it addresses 
this specifically, right? When their superiors were Westerners, Brits, Americans, maybe Canadians, I don't know, I just threw them in there. But they were trained to operate a certain way, and that's what they basically took uh, and decided to use when they imported workers. Um, so I'd say in the UAE, um, a larger influx are coming in post-72, but there's always been history between the, between the Gulf, or what is then known as the Trucial States, mm-hmm. and, say, South Asia. Do you think that growing up as, as a temporary person, if, is that fair? Fair enough. Uh, in, inspired you in some way, or, or shaped your inclinations as a writer? No, I didn't want to write when I was in the UAE. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to stay. But then I had a girlfriend, and when she tells you I'm moving to the States, you want to do that too, right? <laughs> but I also have an Indian passport. Mm-hmm. What that means is you really behave at airports, and when you go to the US, U.S. consulate, you hope and you pray that you get the visa. Mm-hmm. I was not interviewed for my student visa, um, and I don't know why. Uh, and if you have a student visa, you're normally interviewed. My father had no money in the bank, right? And then I come to the States, and all of a sudden, I'm in a position where people tell you, how long will you be staying, and when are you going to get the green card? Uh-huh. Something foreign to me. Because in Abu Dhabi, you know, you're programmed to actually leave, and here you're almost told that you can stay. So if I call myself a temporary person now, it's partly to sound sexy, because it's a good term, right? Yeah, certainly. But on top of that, it's also because it's what I know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have trouble with relationships. My partner's in the audience, so I really shouldn't say that. But the the thing is, um, it's difficult for me to attach myself to people and things. But I also understand time very well. That's what it means. If you're temporary, you're very conscious of time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm conscious of how long I might be in a place. So you equate that to documents. Whether it's your H-1B document here, F-1 visa here, or your residency visa in the UAE. Um, So you're aware as aware as you can possibly be. But again, I have to qualify this. This is my experience, Mm -hmm. right? So because that's what I became, I wanted to try and figure out how I could possibly write about it. But that came much, much later because I was lonely, homesick. So I started penning these wonderful, mournful pieces in my diary about how lonely and homesick I was. I tried to write three books, each one more terrible than the next. <laughs> and then I started writing, the reading narratives about the Gulf, or the Khalij, as we call it, mm-hmm. right? And they didn't get certain things right. When you're I'm, reading in English? I'm reading, reading in English. English. I'm oh. reading in English, right? And I thought I could do something different because I, I assumed I understood the, the place better mm-hmm. because I was 22 years old and arrogant. Yeah. Um, so that's how, that's how I tried to write. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what, what you mention about, about being hyper-aware of time and timelines and how time is contained because one of the things that I found really exciting about the book and also really refreshing, uh, quite frankly, as, as a poet who often gets bogged down in fiction, is uh, the, the wide variety of both length of chapters but also format. And, you know, you have interviews, you have chapters that are just, that, that are more like poems, you know, list poems or brief anecdotes or uh, even uh, reports. Um, I wondered, I, I also, you know, I think that 
that makes sense uh, with what you're you're explaining. I also read recently a list that you put together for a bookstore in Chicago about writers and other uh, visual mediums that had influenced you, and and I specifically noticed uh, several graphic novelists and the uh, the film Waltz with Bashir, for example, and and I wondered, you know, that too made me think of the kind of quick cuts in your work and the way you you have these very brief visual interludes almost. I wondered if you could speak a little bit about the influence both of those graphic novelists and also other other influences. Yeah, so I grew up with comic books. So in the UAE, when I, so this is in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have a library. We had what was called a library, but it really wasn't a library. Until you get to a place like this, a country like this, and it's as big as an airport hangar, and you go, what the fuck? So you have access, right? Which I did not have when I was a kid. But I had comics. Um, and because I read the greats, Sidney Sheldon, Harold Robbins, Alistair MacLean, Barbara Cartland, uh, that's what we had in the bookshops. Mm-hmm. We would, so I wasn't dismissive of writers. I r- read whatever I could, mm-hmm. right? But then you graduated to other things, especially here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I was also fortunate to work for a company called Link TV, and I had colleagues who had more information or knowledge than I did. Milena, one of my bestest friends, is here. She's an example of that. I'd say, all right, fine, just talk, sh- talk about stuff, and I'd listen, right? Neil Sealing is here as well. And I'd take all that information, and I'd look up the films, mm-hmm. and I'd watch these films. And I grew up on Malayalam cinema as well, a Malayalam narrative. My parents are South Asian. We have an oral history as well. So if you read the Panchatantra or the Jataka tale stories that are animus in nature, um, it's a different experience. And I wanted that for the book. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I also didn't want to tailor to a certain narrative that's expected of the international writer, mm-hmm. where I tell you, this is what Dubai is, uh, and this is what a falafel is. A shawarma is basically... And, you know, I'm being facetious, but... This expectation is not the expectation of a writer from the States or Canada or elsewhere, right? You can do things with language, uh, which when I say we, I just mean me. I thought I wasn't allowed to do. And I wanted to do that simply because when you take English, for instance, English is broken. It's a broken language, but it's operational. It's spectacularly broken. Exactly. And I wanted that in the book, right? Mm -hmm. There are things that happen in Abu Dhabi, especially when you have Urdu, Hindi, Tamil, Malayalam, Arabic, everything in operation at the same time. It collides into things. And I wanted that. Mm -hmm. And when I watched Waltz with Bashir, I'm going to give away the ending now, so forgive me. So most of the documentary is animated, 95, 96% of it. It's about the Sabran Shatila massacre in Lebanon, right? But the final two to three minutes... It stops being an animation, and you see these old women screaming. And that shook me. I've never forgotten that experience. And I wanted to write a book that made you sit up and take notice of not just the writer, but of the place and the space. That artists could be produced from this region, not because they inhaled or ingested the Western canon, but because, especially because they were influenced by multiple things, Arabic cartoons, for instance. So I wanted a toy with form. And here you're always asked, what are you? You know, novelist. Or what kind of a fucking novelist are you? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what are you? A poet. What kind of a poet are you? I'm like, come on, man. I write. I use language. Read it. That's what I wanted. I know it sounds arrogant, because I am. 
but I also wanted the book to do things, right? Uh, that moved beyond the narrative that you read in the New York Times or the Guardian elsewhere. That gave these people not just character, but voices. If you read Dybeck, especially how he writes about Chicago, mm-hmm. or Salvador Placencia and the people of paper, you can hear these people. Yeah. So I wanted you to read the book and hear them. And you go, Abu Dhabi could sound like that. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying Abu Dhabi sounds like this. I'm saying it could sound like that. So the influences are everywhere. I've never dismissed anything. Yeah. Uh, and that comes from not knowing anything. That's okay. What languages did you grow up speaking in, in everyday life? So Malayalam is the first language I heard. If you've never heard it, picture a violin. Picture this, I mean, try to imagine what a violin sounds like and then imagine the violin broken. <laughs> and then you have 50 violins playing at the same time. That's Malayalam. And it's quite melodious. That's what I heard. Mm-hmm. English is what I was schooled in because I went to Abu Dhabi Indian School. But my teachers spoke English fluently, but with an Indian intonation. Mm-hmm. It's a different cadence. So in school, we were told, you know, listen to the BBC or watch the BBC, speak like them. This is not my voice. I sound very different when I'm with family and relatives. No, right? This is me it. trying to impress people. But I've forgotten how to be me in public, mm-hmm. especially when I talk. So everything is enunciated. Mm-hmm. It's a, as though I'm forcing the words to come out a certain... They're well-dressed, as my mother would say. <laughs> so my words are iron, the sentences are pressed. Uh, and I sound like that for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. Then there was Arabic. We had to learn it. So I can read it, but I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. But if I were to pronounce a word or two, you'd, you'd probably go, let's, let's talk shop in Arabic, and I'd say, I can't speak it. Mm-hmm. Right? Tamil I can sort of get. English is the only one I can read, write, and speak in. My parents are from Kerala, a state with like 92-93% literacy. It's really embarrassing to tell people you can't read a damn thing. You're in that 7%. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's, it's, it's terrible. So I try to use what I can. And sometimes, I was telling Andre this earlier, the languages collide. Mm-hmm. Right? English collides with Malayalam, that collides with Hindi. and That happened yesterday at an interview. Because I could hear the crash. And I could feel it. And I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Right? So th- there's all of this. But at the same time, if I don't hear Arabic, something's missing. Mm-hmm. You see, I don't understand it. But I need to hear it. Yeah. If I don't hear Malayalam, my... Like Amma's mother in Malayalam, she's missing. Mm-hmm. So I need to hear it. So, but the, that's what I am. You know, just broken, but I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Being broken. Yeah, you're, you're like English. You're yeah. spectacularly broken. Blame the Brits. <laughs> um, is, you know, what is the situation, the, the linguistic situation in, in Abu Dhabi? For example, with these these contract workers, who I assume mostly speak their native languages, who might have to speak or interact in some Arabic at work, is are there different levels of prestige assigned to them? Like we we often assign uh, different groups of immigrants here in the United States. How does that work? So I'm going to speak in hypotheticals because uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. But what I can tell you is. Sometimes instruction might be in Hindi hmm. or in Urdu. You just need 50 words yeah. or 20 or 30 to do things, right? Mm-hmm. Give me 40 proper words in Arabic and I can manage. I can figure shit out. So the thing is, you get disabled when you can't use your language anymore. But then you get desperate. Mm-hmm. And that desperation is directly proportional to the words that you take. Mm-hmm. So in the construction business, it might be, okay, I need to know how to follow orders. So here's what I'm going to use, right? Mm-hmm. 
The linguistic part of your question um, is complicated. It's complex. It depends on who you're asking. Mm-hmm. If you ask the Malayalis, they'll say, we just need to know a few words in Arabic and we can get by. I can tell you, if you knew Malayalam or Hindi, you'll be fine in the UAE. Mm-hmm. If you knew bits of English, you'll be fine in the UAE. If you knew Arabic, you'll be fine in the UAE. Right? So Esperanto never took off. Yeah, it's just, it's just one of those things. And that's what makes the place interesting and spectacular. But 20 years from now, because the demographics are changing, you might get to hear more Tagalog mm-hmm. rather than Hindi or Urdu. But that's, that's how the place is. That's how it operates. Mm-hmm. And if you pay attention to menus and cafeterias, you'll see so many spelling mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, like... Burger, shake, shake, burger. It doesn't make any sense. Milk is spelled wrong. Nobody cares. Yeah. But again, that's that's okay. They can communicate. I think mm-hmm. that's the key here. Yeah. As long as you can communicate, you're okay. Mm-hmm. The minute you can't, things get difficult. As far as class goes, it depends on how you speak the language. Mm-hmm. So because I speak English like this, and I'm a brown man, clearly, it hasn't changed, <laughs> um, I can do certain things that my father can't do. Mm-hmm. He's fluent in English, but he's more deferential because of how language comes out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, but at the same time, if I look like my partner, blonde and blue-eyed, completely different experience. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, that's how it is. Yeah. One one of the other things that that the judges mentioned in their citation that I found really interesting, uh, they said that that your book casts a light on how progress, in quotes, on a global scale is bound up with dehumanization. Hmm. That's you know that's that's a pact statement um, but I wondered if if you could speak speak to that uh, in your from your experience and and what you've witnessed and I mean I, I think part of the you know the thing that felt weird to me in the 48 hours I've spent in Dubai is that you can go skiing in the mall uh, but there there's it's it seemed to me that that there was a you know you I went on a walk outside it's incredibly hot it was a huge mistake when did you go uh this was in it must have been june uh it was a short walk did a friend walk. send you there in june <laughs> <laughs> and um and i saw you know i saw tons of these contract laborers building building things actually building housing complexes and and it was clear that they weren't from there um so so there was this kind of you know i i didn't and i still don't understand it which is is largely the root of my question but i i guess do you see do you see that the the image that the Emirates tries to put out as being a, an exciting kind of uh, Las Vegas uh, <laughs> style entertainment destination at odds with the you know the lifestyles that that these temporary people are are forced or have chosen because of circumstance to live. So I'm going to respond like this: if you took away the Latinos and Hispanics from every restaurant in New York City, mm-hmm. um, the restaurant business will probably fail. Yeah. Right? 
And there are a bunch of undocumented folks working these jobs as well, right? Mm -hmm. And here's why I say that. Um, I understand, or I sort of understand why the judges may have said that, mm -hmm. but dehumanization, I think, might be a bit much, because it's as though it speaks for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and I want people to understand that there are folks who have agency, mm -hmm. uh, who are there for a reason. They understand why they're there. They don't like it, mm -hmm. um, but they're there because they have to work. As far as the heat goes, there's nothing pretty about the heat. You can never make working in that kind of heat sexy or pretty. You can't prettify it. You can't beautify it. Can't be done. As far as the ski skiing goes, I mean, there are many outlandish things in there, but there are also many outlandish things in Nevada, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was in Minneapolis, and you know, they have something called a sky bridge or something, um, where in order to escape the cold, you basically use these bridges, that are, and you don't have to see the sidewalk. Um, it's the same concept, except in Minnesota, it's cold. Um, in the UAE, it's hot. Yeah, I'm not a that, big fan of Minnesota. That's that said, right? That said, the the key word here is dehumanization. Mm -hmm. For me, the issue has always been invisibility. Mm -hmm. So my father went there out of his own accord. He never made much money. He's not a rich man. We were lucky as a family, um, but he had agency. Mm -hmm. But sometimes he's invisible. Um, he's not there. He's ignored by folks. And I'm not saying he's ignored by Marathis. He's ignored by people who do different kinds of work. Mm -hmm. If you go to the shopping mall, you'll have multiple folks doing different kinds of work. And they also get ignored. Uh, there's an invisibility there which has always bothered me. For me, that is more dehumanizing than anything else. It's not the labor itself. Mm -hmm. It's what becomes of the labor after the job is done. Mm -hmm. Something that I loved in New York when I was living there is you take the subway sitting next to the plumber mm -hmm. uh, or the Wall Street account and um, someone's an asshole, someone isn't an asshole, they're all there, right? Mm -hmm. In the UAE, it could be different. Um, it should be different. And I think everybody understands that. The issue I've always had is with the narrative that says this is what the labor is always going to be. That is not cool. Because there are stories that they have that may not either be published or that haven't been told yet that I hope they do tell. And we're speaking about the English language here. Mm -hmm. If you follow Malayalam cinema, there are things that they've done since the early 80s that speaks of this particular experience. A good example would be Arabic Kada, which is a Malayalam film that came out in the early 2000s, that mm -hmm. speaks of this experience. And it's not the dehumanization that everyone was concerned with in the film, and even my uncles and aunts. It's always been invisibility and absence. You think of family especially if you can't bring family over. In my family, my sibling and I are the only ones who were raised by our parents. Not everyone has that luxury. And, and I think that breaks people more so than anything else. Could the laws change for the better? Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful they're working on it. Do you think... Um, well, I mean, first of all, are you planning to, to launch this book in in the Emirates? And, uh, I mean, have uh, my own parade and say, hey. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe go on a walk. I don't recommend it. But, uh, you know, um, do you, how, how do you think, I mean, I'm interested in, in how people, you think people might respond to this book in the Emirates, all, all sorts of people. I mean, from your own family and, and colleagues to, you know. Um. So we're speaking in hypotheticals now, right? Yeah. So my parents will never read it. 
Okay. I hope they never read it because they'll be heartbroken if they do. Mm. My sister put a Facebook post recently saying she's reading it, so we'll see if she talks about it. Okay. It's going to make people uncomfortable mm-hmm. and it's going to give people joy and some people won't care because they think it's badly written, probably. As long as it's validated, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. How is the government going to respond to just probably, probably what your question is? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. Yeah. And part of me is arrogant enough to think that they really care that I've published this book. Yeah. <laughs> and the other part is um, they don't give a damn. Yeah. And here's why the don't give a damn matters. If you look at the artists that have been chosen for the UAE Pavilion at the Venice Biennale, which happens in May, mm-hmm. there's a certain selection of these artists who are from the diaspora. Mm-hmm. And in the written publication, they're also from the diaspora. Qualifiers, I know some of these people, mm-hmm. but most of them were born and raised in Dubai or in the Khalij, what we call the Gulf, mm-hmm. right? That's a shift. Um, that's a, this is really, really important. It, not, it might not seem like a big deal, but to me it is. Mm-hmm. On top of that, um, I hope the book creates some sort of a conversation. I'm not being confrontational. Like, let's talk. It pisses you off. Let me buy you. Well, as opposed to let me buy you a drink. It depends on. Come home, I'll you know, give you a drink. And, <laughs> um, let's talk. Um, that's, part of, that's part of it. I think mm-hmm. it's important. I wrote it for my parents. Mm. I started off writing it for me. But I wanted some sort of document to acknowledge that my parents are there. Mm-hmm. That they used to be there. Uh, because once they're gone and they will leave, if someone asks, so what was it like? And someone could actually say, well, if you pick up Onikrishnan's book, or Andre's book of poems, The Promised Land, or other writers who are doing stuff like Tanaz Batena, who grew up in Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. whose book is coming out next year, or the vi- look at work by the visual artist Raja Khalid, Lantanji, or the writer Ahmed Makia, or the art critic Murtaza Wali, you'll figure it out. Right? You may understand. So there's a shift. Mm-hmm. And here's why I'm saying that. Our generation is quite talkative. Uh, we're a little bit more pissier than our parents. Uh, our parents were trained to be a little bit more deferential or polite, mm-hmm. right? Um, we don't obey as much. And I'm not saying we're being seditious, but what I'm saying is we have stuff to say, and we're not that interesting yet, so we're using our family, mm-hmm. and we're talking about them, right? At least I am. Yeah. Uh, and that's why, that's why they're part of the book. My parents are in the book, but they're not the book. Well, uh, it seems it seems you're not you're no longer willing to be invisible, uh, as you say. Or it's just me saying that there were certain people who ought to be remembered. Mm-hmm. And if someone says, especially in narratives that come out from the West, uh, there's mm-hmm. no document that acknowledges this. There's no artistic product that's come out of the region. Uh, people should say that's not true. Mm-hmm. and give names and offer names. And it's not just artists from the diaspora. I'm also talking about Emirati artists. Mm-hmm. And why I say that is I work with Emirati students mm-hmm. um, who want to do shit and yeah. who want to say stuff. Mm-hmm. So our generation is a bit more boring, mm-hmm. um, but the next two generations, I think, might be doing more interesting things. At least that's the hope. Mm-hmm. That's very encouraging. I suspect our audience has a lot of questions, but I wondered if if you could read uh, another brief excerpt from the book um, before we open open it up to them. Thank you so much for coming. This really means a lot. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a very short excerpt that has a bunch of Malayalam in it so you know what it might sound like. So it's called Kata Shop. Kada, story. Kada Karan, 
shopkeeper. I'm going to try the Indian accent now. Let's see how it goes. Below my building is a kada. You know, shop. With a kada karan. You know, shopkeeper. This kada, you know, story involves him. Kadakaran Moidu is what Amma called him. I called him Karate Moidu because he called himself Karate Moidu because he took lessons for a few months before breaking his wrist after falling from a chair ending what would have been a promising Karate Moidu career. So now he had his Kada which became his Kada that he turned into another Kadakaran in Arabinad. You know, Arabic country. All of this, his Kada, his Kada, that he became a Kadakaran, became his Arabic Kada. That was his Vidhi. You know, fate. Thank you. Questions, guys? What was the relationship of the people in Dubai to these people who are coming on such a temporary basis? What's your name, by the way? Hi, Deepak. So that question, uh, it doesn't have a complicated answer, but you have to look at the history of the place. So the tribe in Dubai is related to the tribe in Abu Dhabi. They split not too long ago. So they've always, been, they've always had trade between South Asia and the Indian subcontinent. So these people have always gone back and forth. There are Emirathis who have lived in India, been schooled in India, who speak Hindi and Urdu, at least back in the day. Um, not many of them anymore. So the relationship is, I wouldn't, it's not just strong, but it's ingrained into the country. Right? So they're not dismissive of folks who come. Um, it's just that they understand that these people are here for work. And sometimes there is a little bit of arrogance built into that when someone says, if you don't do what I'm asking you to do, just leave. Why are you here? Right? But that's one narrative. You also have others who say, these people are here building our nation, quite literally building the nation from scratch, and doing other things. So we should be not just cordial, but aware of what they've left behind. So in other words, to answer your question, we really need to have dinner and have a, con- and, and have a conversation, right? Because it would be easy for me to think of a two or three minute soundbite and say this is what it is. But it's complicated. Um, my parents have had... a a difficult and wonderful relationship with the country. They're grateful. They adore it. Um, At the same time, they're saddened by it. But that's my relationship with the place as well. And I believe that needs to be acknowledged. And when when you say, uh, and I say this respectfully, the people of Dubai, I wonder, who are you thinking about? Are you thinking about the Emiratis? Are you thinking about those from the Arab... The whole structure of yeah. 
Right. I don't know, do these workers mainly come from India? So they used to, a large demographic. There are more others coming from elsewhere. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a bunch more East Africans coming in now. Yeah, of course. So, you know, to break it down easily, I would say 80% of the country is made up of folks from elsewhere. A large percentage of that is South Asian. Majority of them from India and Pakistan. Now you have a bunch of Bangladeshis and Nepalis coming in as well. Uh, in Qatar, they've hired many Nepalis to do work on the stadiums for the World Cup, but that's a different story. Um, and then you have the East Africans, and then you have folks from Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon, all figuring out a way to live with each other. Um, so in that, ca- in, you know, in, that, in that sense, it's an interesting country. It teaches you to figure out how to live with each other. Come visit. And I work for NYU Abu Dhabi. Just look me up. Take you out to lunch. Well, don't go on a walk in the summer. <laughs> come in the winter. Don't come in June. Any other questions? I know the, the story is about temporary people in the United States. You can come to the United States theoretically from America to subscribe to certain uh, aesthetics when you come to the United States. I was curious to know um, is there any kind of, I know you're here temporarily, but if you stay, choose to stay to adopt what's going on to the culture in a way. So, for example, in the United States, sushi is no longer a foreign word. <laughs> you know, so um, is there any, any of that kind of melting? Do you know what a chips Oman sandwich is? Okay. So it's a packet of crisps called Chips Oman. It's like, it's a little ketchup-y, spicy. It's not bad. It's not the greatest invention of mankind. But if you order a Chips Oman sandwich, what they'll do is they'll take what's called a porota, which is from Kerala, uh, the cousin of the paratha, which you find here, right? They put chips in it, cream cheese, and Tabasco sauce. That would be my response to your sushi question. <laughs> you bet it happens everywhere. Wow, I'm a little disappointed we didn't have this catered. <laughs> <laughs> I could make you one. <laughs> yes. Hi. Hi. Um, Say your name again. Lorena. Hi, Lorena. Yes. Nice to meet you. Uh, I really am excited to hear everything you said. I also wanted to ask. Uh, you know, uh, being that from Latin America myself and knowing the duality of being an immigrant and, you know, coming to America, I'm just wondering if, you know, if, if we find some of the, like, hard politics that, you know, involve really um, being your country sometimes, like, in, you know, in the, in the, um, in some of the, uh, you know, if you apply uh, immigrants that come to America and uh, start a life here, Many times, the politics that involve uh, them coming here also means uh, some of small cities are completely like, you know, there's no one left behind. So that's okay. Um, Could you summarize your question? Yeah, I'll try. I'm wondering if that duality also exists in your so I, I teach for a living, but summation is something I do badly, but I'm going to try. So basically, I'm being asked if after people leave their homeland to go to another country, like the United States, what do they leave behind, so to speak, in the homeland, right? So in Kerala, where my parents are from, which is in South India, southwest, 
You have a bunch of old people, men and women, returning from the Gulf or the Khalij. When they're left in the 70s, 80s, right, they're left behind their mothers and fathers, so they're left behind folks who aged. But the homes were almost empty. You have homes in Kerala that are magnificent. You know, they look like homes you can find probably in California. But there's no one living in it, right? My parents stopped going to Kerala after my great-grandmother died in July of 98, um, simply because there's nothing to return to. So there's that absence felt not just in the country, but also in the country that they're appropriating, so to speak. You bet. Um, it's just that I, um, the narratives haven't come out as much as they've come out in the U.S. There's a rich history here and tradition. And if you want to go back to narratives, you start with the Native Americans as well, since we're speaking of appropriation, right? Um, sure, it's heartbreaking. And sometimes it's also joyful. Don't get me wrong, this book will make you laugh, please. Uh, sometimes. Um, there's joy in it. But if it's true joy, there's also a lot of heartbreak because you have to make decisions, right? Um, I decided to leave my parents. They decided to leave theirs. My grandparents left theirs. We know how to do this, but we also understand we're selfish. We're not okay with it, but we try. You have a question? Ask away. I know you, man. He's a friend of mine. He's being an idiot. <laughs> place operates, you mean? Yeah, I mean, uh, the joke goes, Abu Dhabi is a city of men. Um, but it was slightly different in the 80s and the early 90s because if you were a cab driver, you could bring your family over and they could live with you. Then the laws changed. And because the laws changed, the mood changed. And so now you have a bunch of folks who are doing menial labor who live in the outskirts. Um, and I don't think the government is doing that because it's mean. But that's the decision that they chose, right? Of course that changes things. You know, I have students uh, who believe that they're not privileged to be studying at New York University, Abu Dhabi. They've earned the right to be there. And some of these folks who work these menial jobs deserve it. And sometimes they're not seen. And that's what I mean by visibility and invisibility. Especially in a city like New York, you see them. Um, almost, you're almost forced to acknowledge people. And that's important. Um, in the Gulf, especially in the UAE, you know they're building these things. Now I'm talking about construction workers specific, specifically. Um, but you wonder what their lives are like, you know? They don't have access to everything. But if you're really interested, I would look at uh, migration studies done in Kerala, read up uh, on it by referencing Carolyn Osella, who's done wonderful work on this. Neha Wara wrote a book about this called Impossible Citizens. And the migration story is different. I have a friend who is an artist in Dubai who refuses to be called a member of the diaspora. He says, I'm not a migrant, I'm not a member of the diaspora, I'm from Dubai. 
Uh, that's good enough for him, right? Um, simply because it, uh, there haven't been enough narratives claiming what we are. And again, I say we loosely because I've always believed I'm a creature of cities, and that's just a consequence of circumstance, right? I'd like to call myself American, but I'm not. I'm not a Marathi. I've stopped identifying as being Indian for a long time. But I like cities. My best friends come from cities. And some of you are here, right? So yeah, it's a different story. Someone else should write it better, hopefully. Inshallah, like they say. (laughs) Yes. Hey. Hi. Um, So, growing up in the United States, where and how I grew up, I grew up in a very not-privileged community. And so acknowledging people from all kinds of different backgrounds, socioeconomic, culturally, felt completely natural to me. But I have family in Brazil. And when I go to Brazil and I speak to people who are of a working class, they yeah. look at me like I have two heads. Yeah. Because who am I to actually be acknowledging them being a white and blonde and American and Do you have something similar to that in Akhazabi where you may want to become somebody who is No, I think it takes time because I have to understand power and how power operates in the Gulf. So we live on campus, New York University, Abu Dhabi, and Saadiyat. I don't like living on campus, but I was told I had to do it. I wanted to live in the city. We have someone who works uh, as security. Her name is Selvi. She's Filipino, and she's really wonderful. It took me three months to have her stop calling me sir. She still calls my partner Miss Raya, right? Simply because it was difficult. That's what they were told. The contracting company told them there should be a certain amount of deference. It took time, and I'm also aware of power. For the first time in my life, I know what it's like to be an expat. And when we were little, when we were young, expat meant folks who had lighter shade than mine, right? Who were American, Canadian, or British. For the first time, I have insurance and a little bit of money and I understand that I have power and I also understand why people can get high on it right do, do I try to make an effort to talk to everybody no that would be being patronizing um, but I try my best to remember where I came from and I don't say that as a cliche like, and I didn't grow up like Cinderella or anything but I think it's important just to let people know that they're there and here's how I do it I just learn their names I say hi Selby and by the end of the month hopefully I can crack her to say Raya instead of Miss Raya <laughs> yes you can I can but may I <laughs> of course go ahead the United States has gone through very insane immigration laws and at one point no <laughs> so help me <laughs> yeah go ahead so there was one point when people from East India were prohibited from entering yeah were people from Dubai ever in that category prohibited from entering yes I think that's about 20s 30s whatever the year I don't I don't know I don't know enough to answer that properly um I, on, I honestly don't know. Prohibited? Probably not, um, because you need a lot of brown people to build things. Um, but at the same time, you're also talking about indentured servitude when you're talking about East India or East Indians. Like Cooley Woman, if you've never read it, is a book that I would highly recommend and addresses that specifically. But prohibition? 
Not yet. It's been quite open, actually. Given that we're living in the age of Trump, it's quite ironic that I'm living in a country that's incredibly diverse, tolerant, and open, and I'm not talking about the United States, uh, which is why my professors told me I should stick around here for a while. And this is home, too, right? Um, and prohibition, not, not yet. Not that I know of, um, but I'm not a scholar. Yeah. I think we have time for... One last question, the gentleman on the front row. Uh, you mentioned um, how there's roughly 80% of the population is uh, guest workers. Yeah. yeah. Um, and learning just a little bit of each other's languages to get along. I can kind of understand or imagine how that would work on a street level. But can you talk about how, like, what's the. Is there a. Uh, um, any kind of larger, like, the, the public discourse, what's that like? Is it all, is it, is it affected by the fact that, like, is there common media, common language, things like that, or is there all this sophisticated communication happening behind private? So, so when you say public discourse, uh, what do you mean exactly? You can take your time. I just mean, like, there, there's a, uh, um, like, the United States, for example, you know, most of the, the larger media are, huh. are in English, um, and then in the bigger cities, there's there's also Spanish language media is very common. Got it. Um, Here's how I can answer that. Um, so we have cable, which is free that the university pay for, pays for. <laughs> so if you s- switch the TV on, right, uh, you will find um, Filipino channels, um, Chinese TV, 300 channels in Hindi. Um, Malayalam, Tamil. I wish that was a joke. Uh, Tamil uh, (laughs) news channels from everywhere, uh, basically acknowledging the diaspora, which you don't have here. One of the first experiences I had when I was in the U.S. was I was geographically disconnected from not just stuff that I wanted, but from sounds and languages, which doesn't happen in the UAE. Right? Media, you get Arabic and you get English as well. But my father also uh, gets the Malayalam paper. You, you can find it. Um, it's incredibly rich that way. Um, but at the same time, communities like to hold on to each other and not venture out as much. Yeah, that's kind of what I was asking. It's, does it feel like... Sorry. Yeah, it's fragmented. It does, fragmented. it does feel fragmented, that's right. It also depends on what sort of enclave you're living in. So if you're in, on Saadia at New York University, it's a very Western-ish bubble. But if you're in Hamdan Street, where I grew up, or Batin, where Andre's parents used to live, again, very different experience. Um, it is fragmented that way. But that doesn't mean people are being pushed out or asked to keep away. It's just how the city operates. It's been changing now because of all the construction. So you can't walk to places, not in June, but you can't walk to places as much as you could before. And growing up there, your parents um, lived there for, I assume... 45 years. 45 years. Yeah. Um, how does that affect your identity where you have a segmented kind of my language, but also that's your home? That's, oh, that's e- easy, I'll tell you. Um, I worked on this for a while. <laughs> I'm from Abu Dhabi. Uh, there's a reason why the bio says that. Um, because then you'll ask me a question, what does that mean? Right? I'm from Abu Dhabi. Um, at the same time, it's a city that raised me. Then you have New York that... Uh, sort of freed me in Chicago that made me. I'm a creature of cities and I'm okay with that. My parents aren't. 
but I'm okay with that. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Deepak, so much for this enlightening conversation and and for this book, which I encourage everyone to buy and have signed. You'll probably say the same thing, but I always say it's it's not too early to start shopping for the holidays, and <laughs> you should buy several copies. This book would make a great gift. Thanks for coming up. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.